I think one of the things I, I learned was that you've, you've got to be really careful that with knowledge and experience, you don't let uh, arrogance grow. I think that's one of the key things, and I've seen it happen with other people, um, where you, you, you shouldn't ever believe you've got all the answers. So you've got to be, you know, you've got, to, you've got to be a good listener. You've got to invite others in with expertise to actually give you the answers. But also that becomes important when you're dealing with organising committees because when you look at organising committees, generally speaking, and it is changing, is that when they organise a game, it will be the first time. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with the most capped Olympic team official in Australian sporting history. With more than 35 years experience in the sports industry, he has been involved in the successful planning, management and leadership of 12 Australian Olympic teams between 1992 and 2014. His education involved earning a diploma of teaching in physical education from the Australian College of Physical Education and an MBA in sport management from the Southern Cross University. He is internationally recognized expert in strategic team and event planning and has a wealth of experience in sport program design, policy development, governance and integrity. After eight years working in the New South Wales Department of Sport and Recreation, he had an illustrious 24 years as the Technical Director, Director of Sport and Secretary General of the Australian Olympic Committee. Most recently, he led the highly successful Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games in Australia. I'm honoured to have the privilege to present to you the current CEO of Commonwealth Games Australia and recipient of the 2018 Australian Institute of Sport Sports Performance Award for Leadership, Craig Phillips. Craig, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, thank you. Sport has been uh, the cornerstone of your professional career and I'm sure it has consumed nearly every minute of your life so far. What was life like for you as a child and what sports did you grow up playing? Well, I, I, my earliest memories of a child really very much involved being around sport. So whether it was on Saturday mornings going off with my mum when she played netball and, and sitting on the sidelines or going with my dad to watch his beloved uh, South Sydney Rabbitohs, uh, those memories are all very much part of my childhood. Then moving on to being a sports participant myself, I guess I did all the things that, a boy growing up in Sydney would do. I played rugby league for a while. I swam in swim schools. Later on, played water polo. Um, I went on to play, uh, to be involved in, in pentathlon, modern pentathlon, um, which is really where I, I started to get a real passion, I guess, for Olympic sport uh, as a teenager and then in my early uh, early 20s. And really from there, transitioned into, into sports administration. So sport has been part of my life as long as I can remember in my life. So. So was that transition into the career in sport, was that just a flow on effect from I love sport or were, was there something a little bit more to it? Like, you know, I, I really want to make a difference in sport. It's funny, I, I knew I always wanted to be in and around sport. Uh, and really when I, when I first went from high school into tertiary education, 
there, there weren't a lot of options in terms of uh, uh, qualifications that you could get to work in sport. They're, they're really in their infancy in Australia. So a normal path seemed to be um, becoming a phys ed teacher and then uh, moving into sports administration from there, which is really the path I, I took. I, my, I guess my my steps into sports administration were twofold. One was following a career and working with uh, New South Wales Sport and Recreation. But the other way was also as a volunteer because I I decided because I needed to, I guess, get a job and also get a university uh, qualification that I needed to actually park my sporting ambitions for a while. And someone asked me to take on a voluntary role uh, in my early 20s and that was with my sport of pentathlon. Um, so the two sort of lined up together and then uh, from there opportunities arose which took me more fully into, uh, into sport. Yeah, wonderful. So your career began in an exciting time for Australian sport. It, it was around the time where um, Australia had just come off its worst Olympic Games in 1976 and the Australian government was heavily investing in the Australian Institute of Sport. What was it like to be involved in such a pioneering time in the sport? Look, it was exciting. I think um, you probably, when you're immersed in it, you don't realise what, a, I guess, important time it was in Australian sport and some, some key key moments where decisions were taken where if they had been taken, different decisions had been taken, Australian sport could have gone another way. So it was exciting to look back and be part of that. Uh, I guess as a young athlete, you didn't realise some of that was, was in the background, but I think as I got further into my career and got more involved in in sports management and, and working particularly in government, you started to actually realise some of those seismic changes that were happening in sport, particularly at a federal level. Um, so you know, as, you, as you said, the, the creation of the AIS, you know, the increase in funding later in the 80s, and then of course, I think when later on in the early 90s when, when Sydney uh, won the right to host the games, that changed things again. So, so it was an exciting time in that early part of my career to see those changes, but also in the industry seeing sports management being taken far more seriously as a, as a career option. So uh, I guess for me it was exciting to be there at that time, seeing, seeing the industry develop. So how, what, what have been some of the biggest changes you've seen in that sport industry over the last sort of 25, 30 years? Probably the most significant thing was probably in the 80s, you know, apart from the professional codes, which were probably already there, seeing sport more, more generally embrace the fact that it was actually a, a career path, it was actually a, a legitimate industry, it actually contributed significantly to the economy. So you needed professionals uh, to actually work in the industry because the, the industry is very much driven on the, the back of volunteers and it still very much is. Uh, but at that time, you made your way into sport as a, as a professional through other paths, usually through phys ed or through something like even the law. Uh, you, didn't actually, you didn't actually enter it probably legitimately directly from high school and, and mm. seeing that pathway. So, so that's, that's changed and seeing the industry change and you know, the, the availability of sports management programs, sports coaching programs, all of that you see now, and I guess common things now, you, you didn't see in the 80s. And I, I'm not sure if I'd started the same place, I necessarily would have ended up in the same place because I would have been competing with people who were actually training to be sports professionals at the time. There's a lot of them now. There are a lot of them, yeah. So, you know, interesting going through that change and obviously now we're seeing the, the structure of sport starting to change and evolve as well. Obviously, it was, they were designed, the not-for-profit sport organisations were designed for volunteers to run them. And so now we've, we're starting to see those organisations grow to a big enough size where it actually needs to change its structure to meet the, 
the vision and the goals of the sport and to keep up with other entertainment. Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, I, I, the volunteer is still very much an important part of the sport industry. And if, if you know, we started to pull back on the contribution of volunteers, then sport would ultimately die. But I think the challenges you have now is the, our, life, our lifestyle has changed and has blurred so that the traditional of you know, working, nine, working nine to five on a Monday to Friday and then the weekend was for playing sport or volunteering in sport, those days have changed. And the way people consume sport or participate, you know, signing up for a team, paying a capitation fee at the start of a season and then sticking with that all the way through a season, that's changing. People don't like making those commitments anymore. So, so sport as an industry has to evolve to actually be able to accommodate that so that people essentially can pay and play, uh, plug in and play when they want to play. Um, but the, rob- the problem with that is you start to lose the commitment to sport, which then leads to your volunteer workforce. And that's the challenge for the future, I think. Mm, definitely. So as the structures have evolved, you know, what, what skill sets have also evolved from a sport manager point of view? I think uh, certainly uh, embracing technology. I think uh, being, and you know, obviously younger generations much better equipped at this than I am in my, at my age. But you know, I think sport still there's a long way to go in terms of how it enables itself by using technology in a smarter way. So I think that's probably the, one of the, the opportunities for the future for organisations, particularly where organisations might be limited in resources. Um, so I think that's been a significant change. I think also in one way is a positive and in some ways also brings some, some negativity as well is is because we've become more professional is that you know things like duty of care member protection all those things which are absolutely vitally important and we have to do but they present new challenges to organizations that haven't necessarily been built that way in the past so you know making sure that kids are safe and they're in a protected environment they're working with people who are going to look after them um, really important things now in sport which probably if we go back a couple of decades, we weren't thinking about that much. We, we sort of knew we did it, we needed to do it, but we didn't think about it that much in terms of how you created those structures to protect people. Yeah. So being involved in 12 Olympic campaigns while working at the Australian Olympic Committee allowed you to get close to the action and see some incredible sporting moments. What for you were some of those great individual or single sporting moments that are really vivid and you're going to remember forever? Uh, probably the ones that, um, for me, are the ones that I've felt a connection to, a strong connection to. I mean, my job allowed me to work, I guess, on a large scale around around teams and putting in place things like uh, team plans and team uh, team environments and that sort of thing, which work across all, of, all the athletes. And you don't necessarily get to have that direct connection, particularly in the larger summer teams. So the ones for me are the ones where I can actually think back and had a personal connection to a performance, which I, I, I you know, for me are the, the probably the cherished ones. Um, you know, people like Stephen Bradbury, and it might be odd to say this, Stevens is actually the only winter medal I never saw live when I was actually standing in a car park trying to get into the stadium when he won it. But it's the story for me, the connection to him of what happened in the days leading up to that, which actually resonate for me. You know, broke his boot, needed to find a hardware store. I remember getting in a car with him and driving halfway across Salt Lake City to find a hardware store so he could punch a hole in his boot. And I got to spend some time with him talking to him. And then so when he, he comes, and I remember talking to him, he was all he was worried about at that point was the American Apollo Ono 
um, giving him a plug on the podium about the Stephen's boots because he wore Stephen's boots as well. <laughs> and, but of course that didn't happen and Stephen stood at the top of the podium. But just the connection with him and knowing that you know you helped him out and you can make a difference to his performance in the end, that, that, that was an important one. And the other one was uh, Grant Hackett in, um, in, in Athens winning the 1500 with, with the lung problems he had and the health yeah. problems he had. Well, no one knew, he didn't tell anybody. But you know, a couple of days before, I took him to one of his final swims, uh, swim la- uh, swim outs in terms of preparation um, in a golf cart. To a, you know, he only had to walk 300 metres to his training, but he, he got me to deliver him in a golf cart. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd. But after the performance, you understood. I understood why he was actually struggling. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, those it's those personal connections are the ones that resonate most for me. Um, where you get, you get to think where you actually di- personally made a may have made a difference to somebody. So, an Olympic campaigns don't just happen overnight you know they they months years of of preparation and diligence goes into them so what does the process look like for an olympic team um, and how far out from the games do you generally does that preparation commence well you actually start actually start planning for the next olympic games or next commonwealth games when the one before is, is concluding because the planning cycle is, is, is very much that, it's a cycle, it's a circle. So when you're reviewing one campaign and the things that you did well, the things that you didn't do so well, the things you would do differently at the next campaign, when you go through that review process, that gives you, I guess, the starting point for planning the next campaign. Then you move into a mode of, I guess, of discovery where you, you're going to host um, host cities, the new, the new games environment. And that's one of the things about Olympic Games is or, or Commonwealth Games is you're always going to a new competition environment so you have to actually adapt to that, that environment. So the next phase of that cycle really is getting getting there, getting to know the people, getting to know as much as you can about culture and about the game's plan, how a city's laid out, what the transport looks like, where the challenges are going to be, what the opportunities are. So all those sorts of things very early in your planning and then strategically you start to plan for that. You also get a sense of what the organising committee is going to be like, and um, and how well that you, you think they're going to perform. Because the quality of an organising committee will actually give you the bedrock in terms of what you build on when you when you're creating the team environment. So a very good organising committee gives you a very stable platform. One that's not so good, you have to then build into your own planning ways of actually overcoming a poor a poor games environment. And for us, we very much focus on what were the things we could do around the team that one overcame challenges of an environment, or two uh, capitalised on opportunities of an environment. So, so from our perspective, and part of my role, and the part of my role I probably liked as much as any was was actually trying to solve what solve the puzzle. What was the puzzle, and how you could actually solve it, and actually put athletes in a position to actually do their best. And that, that's what the job was about. So leading a team of, say, leaders and some incredibly talented people is somewhat different to your to a normal CEO role. What are the key leadership skills required during that that Olympic campaign that might be a little bit different to say a normal sports CEO role? Look, I think um, I think the the key thing is that much of what you do when you're organising a large large team, whether it's Olympic Games or Commonwealth Games, is that much of the delivery of that relies on other parties. And that, that happens in other businesses and other and sport as well. I know, but but it's very much your that the environment. The, what you can control is what you create at the time of the games. What you can't necessarily control is what lead, leads in. So, uh, one of the challenges is you've got to get 
people on board to actually see the vision of what you're trying to do and actually buy into that and actually contribute to it. And that's not always easy because, you know, for a lot of our sports, they they look after the high-performance programs of athletes 24-7, you know, 365 days a year. So there's a certain level of ownership for them, for the athletes, for the coaches and so on. So suddenly if you're trying to present the creation of an environment that may look a bit different to them, you've, you've got to find a way of actually making sure they understand that you're trying to get the best for them. So that is one of the challenges that you normally wouldn't face that... Because it's not, not like they're subsidiary companies and not like they're, they're divisions of your business. They're actually partners and you've got to bring them along with you. So, so that's probably the most, one of the most significant things. But it's also one of the pleasing, most pleasing things because when you do get everyone uh, you know, heading in the one direction and all essentially sitting off the same sheet, it, it actually is very rewarding. Yeah. So, so what, you know, obviously you're talking about different challenges and opportunities. Are you able to share, say, one of those big lessons learned you know, over... 12 campaigns and obviously now Kong Games as well that allowed you to really grow yourself as a leader? I think one of the things I learned was that you've, you've got to be really careful that with knowledge and experience you don't let uh, arrogance grow. I think that's one of the key things and I've seen it happen with other people um, where you, you, you shouldn't ever believe you've got all the answers. So you've got to be, you know, you've got, to, you've got to be a good listener. You've got to invite others in with expertise to actually give you the answers. But also that becomes important when you're dealing with organising committees because when you look at organising committees, generally speaking, and it is changing, is that when they organise a games, it will be the first time. It's when you're going there with the experience of having been to previous games with teams, you're, you 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 will have had multiple experiences and and, and a and a build up of experiences that they, they don't have. So you've got to be a little bit careful when you engage with them that you're not trying to tell them their business. What you try and do is actually help guide them a little bit. You can say, look, you know, if they haven't present an idea, for example, on way they might want to change a system or a way something is delivered to teams or whatever it may be, is just being I think respectful of that, but also also trying to actually guide them and saying, well, look. You need to understand that was tried two or three games ago and it didn't work and it didn't work for these reasons. Now, if, you've, if you can do, deliver what you're proposing and, and you overcome those issues, great. But if you can't, you, you may need to actually think about another way of doing it. So it's actually trying to help and guide them and actually pr- tr- try and provide them advice without appearing to be arrogant, mm. without appearing to tell them, what, tell them what they should be doing. So that's probably something I've learned over time is you've always got to be prepared to listen and you've always got to be prepared to actually learn from other people. So we're starting to see greater diversity in the sport industry and finally seeing a number of key roles being filled by exceptional female leaders. How do, how do you think we can increase the number of, say, females in the high-performance, high say, coach space and, and also, you know, in general, senior management roles? Yeah, I think, I think in the, if I guess, deal with the coaching space first, which I think is a very demanding uh, career uh, to pursue, is it's, it, I think we're still very much probably structured that industry to be patriarchal in terms of it suits a particular lifestyle and particular roles and traditional roles that males and females are expected to play, which now isn't really necessarily mm. valid anymore. And the problem is, though, that I'm not sure that the coaching industry and the high-performance industry has actually necessarily moved to actually accommodate what would have been traditional roles. So I think finding ways of doing that are important. Uh, obviously we've had high performing female coaches. 
one of the greatest challenges is actually high performance female coaches in in traditionally male sports. You will see males coach high level female athletes and female teams, but you very rarely see the reverse. Mm. So ways of breaking that down. Um, I think I think identify, seeing that coaching is actually a legitimate career path without necessarily having been a, a top athlete. You know, so often you see, well, they should be a good coach because they're a great athlete. Well, often great athletes don't necessarily make great coaches. So you've got to find a way of actually injecting people in who want to legitimately be coaches uh, who don't necessarily have played a sport, and that breaks down some of that gender that gender mm. barrier, I think, as well. So I think from a coaching point of view, the, the, we're, we're moving that way, but it's, it's, a, it's a slow burn. And, and because it takes so while to step up through hierarchies of systems, you've got to, you've, all the way along, you've got to remove the barriers. And I'm not so necessarily sure we're good at doing that yet. In terms of other leadership roles, I, you know, I'm of the view that um, skills are transportable from sport to sport, from organisation to organisation. So, you know, if you see somebody who is a, a performer who might have come out of a traditional women's sport, say netball, who has the right skill set, there's no reason why they can't go on and mm. lead, you know, lead a, a more traditionally male sport or a you know, gender balanced sport. So, I think it's, I think it's also changing our perception of what leaders do. Um, and you know, I know from working with probably more successful women I've worked with that the, the refreshing thing is they do th- you know, they often do think differently to men, mm. but in a way that actually probably helps. Men often get competitive. Uh, men often want to stand on stand on their own dig and say, "Well, this is my idea and this I'm not moving." Whereas I, I often find working with successful women that they they try and navigate through finding getting everyone to yes. Uh, probably better than men do. Men often the, the engagement, they're winners and losers. Yeah. So I, th- I think, but it's, but it's having systems that recognise and embrace that is, is, the, is the challenge, I think. So this time last year, you would have completed an exceptional Commonwealth Games up on the Gold Coast. And you'd gone from being someone that was creating an environment for a team of athletes from one country to actually setting the environment for everyone. What made the event so successful for you? Look, and, and obviously, I, I you know recognise some of the credit I've been given around this stuff. But I, you know, I'm, I was one of many people that that led this, and you know, from a leadership point of view, was part of a, a very dynamic and uh, you know a very very uh, strong board in terms of the board of the organising committee. So I think I think the but the key thing that was there um, when I came into the role and then and then came onto the board of the organising committee and then played other other roles within the organisation was that there was a very strong focus on what was at the core of the games. And I think, I think Australians, when we organise major sporting events, we, we tend to get that anyway. But it was very evident on the Gold Coast that always at the centre of it was, was delivery of sport and also looking after the athletes. And that, that for me, made all the rest of it much easier. Um, so you know, when you look at the quality of the village that was delivered, you know, the quality of field of play, the, the competition experience for athletes, everything that was done for them, very much had that strong, very strong focus. And I think once you do that, it makes the rest of it a bit easier. So I, I discovered that certainly when I when I was there. But I guess the way I plugged into that was the advice I could provide of past experience of having, you know, worked around working around games villages, working around the competitive environment and saying, well, you know, really you need to be thinking about these things because these become important not only to the athletes but to the people like myself who have responsibility of delivering uh, a team environment. Um, 
because th the thing about it is if you get that right it it actually removes the challenges of that um, for the organizing committee so if you know the better organized teams are in set up don't have don't have any issues to deal with well they, they become a client group you don't have to worry about too much they're, they're being looked after so that was important but I think the other thing about the Gold Coast was that the organizing committee coupled with um, you know the other delivery partners like government at three levels um, and then also things like the broadcaster and the media and so on were very focused on what was happening on the field of play yeah we got you know you obviously get the odd critical article here and there about different things but it, what was happening on the field of play in the theater of sport I think became really important so if you look at say for example what Channel 7 did around their coverage well they really much very much highlighted the integration of the para athletes with the able-bodied athletes so there was when you look at coupling that with what the organizing committee did with what we did around the team having great role models like Kurt Fernley and others is suddenly you created this perfect storm of an environment where where the integration of para athletes was you know well and truly recognized by the public well it had been happening in the Commonwealth Games since 2002 mm -hmm. it's just that we never really focused the right sort of attention on I don't think to, to bring it to the fore and it was a very powerful thing so I think that was that became important but I, I, I certainly got the impression with all of the different people moving parts and the different people involved and organisations involved in organising the games and delivering the games that while we didn't always agree at the heart of it was looking after the athletes as the performer and creating great theatres of sport and that's what that's what ended up happening I think. So you've got um a huge, you know, you've got thousands of volunteers that have all got to share the same values, you need to address the same, need to ensure that there's consistency in the messaging. That's a mammoth task in itself. How long did that process take and what sort of strategies were put in place to ensure there was a really real good clarity around the messaging and also consistency in the way the volunteers yeah, well, I think it was a certainly an end end process. So if you look at if you look at Gold Coast, in the end there was something like sixteen thousand volunteers to help run those games. When they called for applications for volunteers, uh, there was actually forty five thousand people applied. So you know, one in three were going to be selected. So the great thing about that was it gave you right at the start the ability to pick pick the quality people. Yeah. And sometimes people have an unrealistic view of what volunteering is. So they'll say, well, yeah, I'd like to volunteer, but I'm only available for, you know, half a day on the Sunday, and then I can probably come back on Tuesday. And you go, well, no, actually, no, that's not what this is about. You have, you'll have a job, and the job will involve you doing X, Y, and Z. So sort of immediately you start to weed out people who don't really understand what the volunteer commitment is. But I think the starting point here is that Australia has a great tradition of volunteerism, and that's... You see it in sport, but you see it in things like surf life saving. You see it in, you know, rural fire services. You see it in the CFA. So you see it, you see it in multiple places. Um, so that that tradition of volunteerism always comes into our games, uh, which is a great thing. So so you're starting with one people understand what being a volunteer is is all about, and also committing themselves to being a volunteer very strongly. The next part, yeah, so that there was a, certainly a very strong vetting process uh, to get to that uh, very good quality training program and much of it, and for the first time probably to the extent it was done, a very strong online training training modules developed by TAFE in, in Queensland. In fact, to the point where we think it's now a model that can be used 
worldwide with games, Fantastic. Uh, which is a great legacy of the games. So that that again helped. I think you know. I think also to the approach by the organising committee. You know, they talked in terms of workforce. They didn't talk in terms of volunteer and paid staff. So it, it was one work team, um, and also they made it clear that the and the you know the term was the game shapers. We made it clear that these people were part of delivering the games, and the, the games were only going to be successful because of their contribution. So really highlighting how important their role was going to be, regardless of what the role was. So I think that was important. And then just little things along the way that made them feel part of the part of the show. Um, so I think that was all those things came, up, came together, I think, in the end, that gave us a, a very strong uh, workforce. And yes, absolute consistency in messaging and values and how they looked and, and on all of that. But the interesting thing is when you're actually dealing one-on-one with volunteers, there was still scope for people's uh, individual personalities to come through, their own individual stories to come through. You know, sitting with drivers, and you didn't get the same driver every day, but sitting with a driver in a car going somewhere, I mean, you might only be sitting with them for 20 minutes, half an hour, and just listening to how they became to be volunteering, you know, all different walks of life and all different reasons for wanting to do it. And that, that was very rewarding because you got a real sense of how the Gold Coast community had actually embraced the games. And it didn't matter where people were from on the Gold Coast they had a reason to be, want to be part of it. So I think all those things came together uh, very strongly. Yeah, belonging is really important. and It is. Obviously, there's a massive investment that goes into a big event like the Commonwealth Games, and you talked about legacy before, obviously, with the volunteer platform. What other legacy pieces um, have come out of that Gold Coast event and then are continuing to support the nation, um, the, the local community, and, and obviously athletes of the future as yeah. well? Well, I think well, what, the obvious ones are the hardware. I mean, if you look at what was done on the Gold Coast, you know, there were some new venues developed on the Gold Coast which were needed with a, you know, a, a growing population base, particularly in the northern half of, of the Gold Coast, facilities that they never had before that are now community use facilities. So, you know, the one at Coomera, which was essentially a large sports hall, which was developed for and used for gymnastics and netball during the games. but. It's, you know, it was actually built to be a community use facility. Uh, that's one of them, the Carrara, a similar thing. Um, so that we saw the you know, extension to the light rail, which then connected with heavy rail, which has changed, which you know, has changed the transport infrastructure significantly, upgrades to the rail, upgrades to road connection to Brisbane. But the interesting thing that's come out of all that, uh, with the messaging around, around the use of public transport, which the, the, with the Gold Coast was not renowned for, is we're suddenly seeing more patterns of people now using public transport. So people connecting up to Brisbane, using light rail, using heavy rail, rather than getting in their car and driving. So so some of those changes in behaviour have been important. Um, I think, and comes back to, I guess, the volunteer piece as well, I think potentially, and this will be borne out over time, a greater sense of, of community on the Gold Coast. The, the Gold Coast is, is an interesting place. It's sort of almost like a, a string of villages up and down the coast, yeah. different parts of the coast are different, but people often don't see themselves as being Gold Coasters, if you like. They're often from somewhere else. But I think what we saw was actually people start to embrace and feel proud of their community. Um, we saw, we we're seeing in a week or so's time, uh, Sport Accord, you know, the biggest international gathering of uh, sports leaders in the world, is coming to the Gold Coast. And so we're gonna see some of the people who lead international sport come to the Gold Coast and seeing what it has to offer as a destination. So we think we think that will help with things like future, with the future uh, meetings like con- uh, congresses and those sort of things, or or other uh, events 
uh, more events for the Gold Coast or South East Queensland. So all those legacies are there. Um, we saw, you know, the kickstart of, um, you know, with, through the Reconciliation Action Plan that we had, the kickstart of much, much stronger connections and much more focus now on on um, uh, on di- Indigenous businesses. So people who work in the community, whether it's catering or other services provided, that people are now seeking out um, uh, businesses and so on which have a much stronger Indigenous connection, either as an employer or created by Indigenous people. So we're seeing all those sort of things, which are, which are really uh, very positive. So just going to digress a little bit from those big big games and we'll talk a little bit around some other aspects of say business and sport so we're starting to see a lot more focus on mental health for athletes however one area that is quite often forgotten is the mental health of our coaches and also our sport managers how can we better support those who lead the sport and the athletes to ensure that the environment the athletes walk into is the best possible environment for them Look, I think I think one the recognition the, the full recognition that people working in the industry, whether it's as coaches or administrators or high performance managers, are in legitimate uh, roles and and corporate roles, and they should be supported. But they're but they're also in in environments that are often uh, challenged in terms of their resourcing. They're not always resource rich, uh, but also but they are in, in environments where there's expectation of delivery of. Of performance and success, so so you, those two things don't combine very well mm. because what that tends to lead to is the things you don't do are the things that are around the uh, if you like the the health of the organisation and the health of people within an organisation. So that's one of the things we're challenged by. I think the other thing is to we and we've been talking about this a bit lately in our in our workplace that is even just simply the opportunity of people who work in the industry, which can be lonely at times, to actually come together often so that they can actually share share experiences and share some of the issues they're dealing with. You know, it's surprising, certainly in the Commonwealth game sports, I'm not sure about more than more professional codes, but it's surprising that there's not a lot of op- opportunities for coaches from one sport to talk to coaches from another sport. They're all going through exactly the same yeah. thing, they feel exactly the same thing, they feel the same pressures. We don't create that many opportunities from actually talk to each other and actually learn from each other and support one another. So it's actually discovering that you're not alone in a in a situation. So I think the more we can do more around that, and similarly with people around high performance, yeah, again they're in a situation where they're expected to to deliver, but it's often expected to deliver without having the resources to deliver. So so I think we've, we've got to do more in this space. But it's it's like a number of things in the industry right now. It's not a it's not an industry that's terribly well resourced. So, as you when, as you start to try and continue to do things with, in real real terms, less and less resources, things get left out, and the things that do get left out often are the things which attend to the health of the system. So I think you know the skills that athletes develop during their sporting career make them quite attractive to prospective employers. But as they transfer in the general workforce. However, quite often we see those athletes really struggling to effectively implement those high-performing skills that they've learnt from sport into the work that they do. You know, obviously talking about leading to burnout. Is it, you know, a bit of a theory here that that hasn't been proven or hasn't really been tested yet? You know, is it because athletes are always looking for that that physical fatigue that they feel as an athlete, and they know, okay, when I hit that trigger, I've got to recover. Whereas 
in the working world, it's kind of, that doesn't really kick in. It's more of a psychological fatigue, which is very gradual, very slow, mm. and you can't feel it. Like it just, it, and it suddenly catches up on you. Mm. Is, is that something that you think is, it needs to be tackled a little bit further? Certainly the area of athlete well-being engagement and ultimately, you know, once post, post-sporting life, you know, whether it's pursuing career or studies or what I mean, it has to be dealt with better than we have been dealing with it. But I think too that um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the anal- the analogy, but I I think one of the things is that we're probably going to do a better job of having athletes engage in things other than sport earlier. And when I say earlier, I actually mean while they're still active athletes. And whether that means studying or pursuing work in some form, I think it becomes important because I think waiting till an athlete has finished their career, then try and plug them into employment is probably the wrong time. And often, if they're a successful athlete, they'll you know they've achieved you know probably at the the peak of their uh, their endeavour in terms of their sporting um, sporting um, aspirations. But when it, they come back, it comes into being plugged back into the workforce. By and large, you're probably to a certain extent the perception is you'd be starting back at the bottom again. So you've got to start all over again. And I think sometimes that, that transition becomes a struggle for athletes mm. because they're going from one where they're, they're recognised as being high performers to one where they they may not necessarily... They've got some skills that allow them to be high performers in a workplace, but it's actually that recognition and starting to actually then build build up into a career. So m- my view is you've got to do some of that with athletes while they're still competing. And there's actually a bit of... It actually helps, I think, too, with, uh, f- with a mental health point of view for athletes too because... If not in your norm, normally, in, I guess if you're, I want to say not in the normal, if you were, you know you're pursuing a different sort of career, uh, often you find some balance in your life between career and family, or career and some other interest, and the other interest, other interest might be being involved in sport on a recreational level. So you have this balance of things. Sometimes we put athletes in a position where they're just pursuing their sporting career, so they don't, they're not focused on education, they're not focused on pursuing career opportunities, they don't have hobbies. So their whole world is consumed by their sports performance, which means everything is invested in that sports performance. So when an athlete does by their own standards fail, if that's the right term, it, they crash because because the problem is that there isn't something else to go to. If I, you know, if I have a bad day at work, I can go home and talk to my wife about the next holiday we're planning or find out what my kids are doing. Um, there's balance in your life. You're not. It's not just focused on that one thing. But unfortunately, we sometimes put athletes in that in an environment where they are just focused on that one thing. So, so I think we've got to pay more attention early to that sort of engagement, whether it's through education or whether it's through employment opportunities, whatever it may be. Just giving them a separate balance to their lives. So, talking about balance, so what sort of strategies and routines do you incorporate into your life to ensure that you remain active and healthy? Yeah. Making time for for exercise is important, so I, I you know, try and make sure I do something each day, whether it's simply going for a walk and whether it's a walk at lunchtime or walk before work. I often use exercise as a, a form of commuting, so you know, rather than jumping on the tram to work, um, you know, cycling or walking or running. Um, uh, so that certainly from my, my point of view is, becomes important. Um, I, I, think, I think I'm fortunate in that I'm in a because of being in the sport industry, you know, I'm not I'm not in a position where I'm going to lose 
someone uh, losing lots lots of money for somebody or make lots and lots of money for somebody else. Um, I, you know, the stress of the the stress of the job is around creating competition environments. So, to, and but also that gives you the outlet for I guess some enjoyment around the job because part of the job is going to sporting events and I'm a sports nut so yeah. part of my recreation is actually very much aligned with my job um, uh, so I think from that point of view I, I do that um, you know enjoying things away from away from uh, the job so you know particularly if my wife and I are planning holidays you know going and exploring going to see parts of the world we just don't get to see because um, often my travels associated with going somewhere for a game so I see lots of game cities but I don't see much else so making sure I'm building in holidays to do that and I think the key thing is learning to put my devices away every now and again that's probably my my key failing is not yeah. always checking a phone or or a computer for emails or whatever so just learning to actually you know what it can wait till tomorrow I'm not launching missiles I'm not performing <laughs> brain surgery I'm a sports administrator so I can park those things nothing's ever that urgent so we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? That's a good question. There's probably been a number of things more recently where I get back to you know, how I've maintained balance in my life. And you know, some of the holidays my wife and I go on, you know, we, we are trying to find different things to do. Um, hasn't happened yet but we're planning a holiday later in the year in Europe and we're doing a sort of cycle barge tour so we've never done that before oh, so wow. that, was, that was interesting to do that but you know most recently going to going to the Cook Islands and, and while you know we went for rest and relaxation you know doing things like swimming with turtles you know I didn't think I was going to do that when I left to go that, but, that, but just my wife loves the water she loves swimming she swims every weekend you know long distances and all of that but just you know spending time with her in the water exploring coral reefs and chasing turtles and that sort of stuff that was something unexpected but something I you know great greatly cherished from last year last time we were on a holiday together so so what's the one question that you would love to solve the one I'd love to solve is is creating creating uh, international sports structures they've been done in such a way that don't lend themselves to to abuse by people within the system and that's the thing it's probably one of the things I find ref refreshing about the Commonwealth Games movement is that you find that people are very much in this for the right reasons mm -hmm. and unfortunately I'm not sure that's necessarily the, the case always with the leadership of sport often there's another reason and you know it's whether it's power influence money, whatever it may be, unfortunately I think we see systems these days worldwide that actually get caught up in that rather than get necessarily doing the right thing. Um, so a way of solving that because I think I think sport is very powerful and that's one of the things I enjoy about the industry is, is the power that sport brings because it's one of the few languages that everybody, everybody speaks. But what I don't like is when the power of sport is used for not necessarily the right reasons. Yep. Who has left the greatest impression, had the most impact on your career and why? Um, there's probably a couple of people, um, a couple of people really. I think, I think one would be uh, Ian Chesterman who's, who I served on six 
Winter Olympic teams with, and now Ian's lining up to be the chef de mission in Tokyo as the vice president of the AOC. Because the good thing about Ian was, whenever I worked with him, and you know, we I think we worked well together, was that was the way he looked at things when it came to the team environment and what you were trying to achieve, and in particular, remembering that as an athlete, athletes at the end of it. So I think from that point of view, he's someone that always kept me grounded. I think we did it for each other but it always kept me grounded in terms of what it is they're actually trying to do mm. um, so I certainly I, th I think him but the other person's probably Craig McClatchy who Craig and I worked together for about 11 years at the AOC Craig was Secretary General for six or seven years um, so he's, he was one of my predecessors um, but Craig annoyingly always had the always had a way of looking at things which was very different and and you always thought you were being clever when you looked at something a particularly different way and generally someone would say, Oh, I hadn't thought about it that way before but when you'd say it to Craig, he'd he'd look at he'd go one up. He'd always find a different way again to look at it, which you go, Geez, I feel like an idiot. I feel so stupid. <laughs> so I think the two of them and I think working working with both of those for for extended periods of time, they were two good guys who really looked at things in a in a particular way which always got to the heart of what you were doing. And I think that I, I always valued that. Beautiful. So how can people learn more about what you do? And if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to connect with you? Um, the best way is, firstly, learn what we do is you know, probably the best thing through our social media. So our website, our Facebook pages, and then our social media pages. So, um, yeah, you know, Com Games, Oz is the general handle. and you'll, They'll find out whichever form they look. So that, that tells you a bit about our organisation. You'll often see me appearing in that, so that's that. Uh, look, I'm always happy to talk to people in the industry. I'm, you know, I often get approached by young people who are starting out in the sports industry, and I'm always happy to have a chat that we've got a, a general email address, which is inquiries at commonwealthgames.com.au. Um, that's probably the best approach, I think, to start, and that, that gets passed on to me by staff, and then I go from there. But I, I, I like helping young people who see, their, see themselves having a career in sport, and helping to understand what the, what a career path might look like. So. Fantastic. So, Craig, it's been an absolute pleasure um, speaking with you today. I've really enjoyed sort of listening to your very diverse sporting upbringing and, and that pentathlon was kind of that real big focus for you and one that you really enjoyed. And then taking that step away from being an athlete yourself and focusing on a career in sport. And that's seen you go to a number of amazing places around the world see some phenomenal sporting events uh, up to you know 12 13 14 campaigns now and they're continuing to grow with uh, hopefully maybe another one in 2026 back in australia and to get a really good insight into how you lead how you approach um, the, the diverse nature of working in both the australian olympic committee and also now with the commonwealth games australia and and obviously having to lead at a massive, amazing event on the Gold Coast last year for the 2018 Commonwealth Games. So I really appreciate your time and thank you very much for coming on the uh, special Sports People Recruitment Active CEO podcast. Thanks, Craig. This week's Active CEO Wellness Tip is learning. The first stage of learning is absolute silence. The second stage is listening to what people are saying. Absorbing what they say and how they are saying it so you have a better understanding of what they are expressing.
if you don't take that time to absorb and comprehend what the people are saying, how do you know that what you're responding with is actually solving the problem or is actually helping the person that you are talking with? The more you listen and the more you learn, the better you are gonna be as a leader. Thanks for listening to an insightful conversation with Craig Phillips, the Game Shaper, on episode 40 of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO Podcast. To ensure you keep up to date with the latest Active CEO Podcast, please make sure you select the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed the interview with Craig, then please feel free to share on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and also leave an Active CEO Podcast review on your favorite podcast app. As well as the Active CEO podcast, the team at Energy to Perform also work with CEOs and leaders just like you to improve your high-performing skills as both a person and as a leader guiding high-performing teams. We have developed Breaking the CEO Code, keynote speech, coaching framework, and corporate programs so you can learn the four basic fundamentals required to achieve high performance and the three Ps of CEO or leader high performance which are CEO periodization, CEO presence, and CEO performance. When speaking with sport coaches from grassroots to high performance, they felt they could also gain a lot from the program. So we are now developing Breaking the Coach Code, which will be launched soon. Please contact us on www.energytoperform.com or craig at nrg2perform.com to book a complimentary call to find out how the breaking the CEO code or breaking the coach code can help you deliver a higher performance. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.